All right, for our text this morning, I want to finish up chapter 9. It's a little bit of a longer section. Some people divide it in two. But for me, it's a section that kind of uh, fits together as it speaks, not only of what Christ has done, but what he has done for us. Um, So we'll take Hebrews chapter 9 and go from verses 15 to 28 this morning. Uh, As we come before God's word, let me read it for us, and then uh, we'll go before him once again in prayer. Hebrews 9, 15 to 28, again, the very word of our living God. Speaking of Christ, we read this. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been (coughs) declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May it be written on our hearts so that it will bear bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before it this morning. Father in heaven, again we come before you. We ask your blessing upon this time as we come before your word and ask you, as always, to speak to us through it this morning. We ask that you would fulfill your promise, your own promise that you have made, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you void, but instead accomplishes everything that you purpose for it and is successful in everything for which you send it. May that be true here this morning. May you also pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear everything that you would have us see and hear from your word this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet, 
a light to our path so that we can walk according to everything that it teaches us. Father, as always, we ask this in the precious and matchless name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I have a, a little bit of, a, of an odd habit, a weird habit. I, I know I'm not the only one who does this, because I know other people do it as well. I just think I do it more than other people. Um, and that's, I, I, I often think of, of myself in other situations. What, do, what would it be like to be here? What would it be like to be there? Um, what, would, what would it be like to live in Victorian England? Uh, what would it be like to be uh, one of the merry men in Robin Hood's band? What would it be like to to uh, to actually have some athletic skill and talent and be able to to play, or or even do it? I do it frequently for analytical things too. Um, it's helpful for me to think through theology. Um, why does this other person think the way? he or she does about this? Can I put myself in their shoes and see it from their perspective? It's helpful for all sorts of different ways of thinking about things in life, decisions to be made, um, matters of, of theology or economics or politics or whatever it might be. What is it like to think about things or to experience things from that other person's point of view? It's a little bit odd. It's a little bit weird. Um, it doesn't always work, um, but it's often a helpful exercise um, because we get caught up in our own ways of thinking and, and our own assumptions about things. And I thought of that as we were coming to this text this morning, especially about what it was like to live under the Old Covenant. We read about the Old Testament law. We hear it described. We hear the sacrifices described and what was done and the priest does this, and he sprinkles blood here, and he smears it there, and they burn this, and they eat that, and there are these different feasts at this time of the year, and people have to do certain things at, at certain times of the year. They have to do them in certain ways, all these rituals, and it's one thing to read about it, but have you ever thought what it would be like to live like that, to live under that law? Ima- imagine. And, and think about the reading that we had from Leviticus. And you can read the chapters before and after and get a, a bigger picture. But think about, I, I wake up this morning and I realize that yesterday I, I took something from a neighbor that I shouldn't have. I didn't mean to. Maybe it dropped into my bag. Maybe I, but now I've got it. I've sinned against my neighbor. I realize it. And what does the law tell me I have to do? I have to go sacrifice. Well, I confess my sin. I go to the priest. I make the proper sacrifice. If I'm wealthy, it's a, it's, it's a lamb or a goat. If I'm poor, it might be just a, a bag of flour. But I have to go do this. I have to do it to receive forgiveness and to, be, to have my sins atoned for, to be restored to a right relationship with God. Now, that's one thing. But now imagine it Imagine your own life and imagine the sins that we commit hourly, daily, weekly, monthly. And every time that happens, think about this, every time it happens, another sacrifice, another 
payment. And it's called a payment in there, right? We, we read that from Leviticus 5. It's a payment for our sin. I sin, I pay. I sin, I pay. It's like people have, you know, you've heard of the swear jars? <laughs> you swear you put a, a quarter in a, in, a, in a jar or whatever the price is today. I don't know, a dollar or something. <laughs> it's not a similar concept, but this is with God. I commit a sin, I make a payment. I commit a sin, I make a payment. I commit a sin, I make a payment. Think of how, think of how daunting that is. Think of how much effort that takes. Think about how much it costs over and over and over again to have to make these payments time after time after time after time. There's, there's all sorts of, of reactions that one might have to that daily, constant payment for sins that I've committed. I mean, if you're a conscientious Israelite, if you're a conscientious uh, member of that covenant, what's your response? How, when is my herd going to be nothing? When are my flocks going to run out? When are, when are the turtle doves and pigeons gone? When does the flower disappear? There's, there's a little bit of experiential or, or existential fear, I think, that would arise up in some people, or even despair. How can I possibly... How can I possibly make payment for all my sins? I am not that wealthy. I don't have that much stuff. And you can see how in in Israelite culture, some people may end up in great debt because they might borrow from a neighbor. I sinned again. I, I, I need a goat. Let me borrow some money. Or eventually, if things got worse, sell themselves into employment or indentured servitude with that with that neighbor. And then you're hoping that that neighbor will be good to you and follow the law when the seventh year of Jubilee comes along. But think of that cycle, even that. Okay, I get restored after seven years, but now it's just the old... It's, this, it's over and over and over and over. The monotony, the despair, the futility that could arise in that kind of a situation. Now, we have to look at the other side of things, too. In reality, the Israelites should not despair because there are promises attached to God's law. If you obey it, if you do what I tell you, I will pour out an abundance of wealth upon you. And so for the Israelite, even though <laughs> it's a daunting system and a costly system, <coughs> there is a promise from God that if they follow his law, he will pour out abundant blessing on them. And so even for the Israel, here's where I think we begin to make a connection to the just shall live by faith. The just will do what the law requires, having faith that God will not let them go destitute. I think that had to be true for the faithful in Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel. Now maybe, some, maybe, maybe, I, <laughs> maybe I learned something and get a little bit smarter and the next time I'm tempted to sin, I actually avoid it because I don't want to make that payment. The law does constrain sin. We talk about that use of the law. Maybe I learned that lesson. But there's another lesson in there as well because even if God provides abundance, 
there's a lesson. And the writer to, he to the Hebrews has been teaching us this lesson. There's a lesson in that repeated, demanding, difficult, frustrating system of sacrifice for every time I sin, I've got to make a sacrifice. And that realization should have been for the Old Testament believer, there's got to be a better way. There has got to be a better way. Can't there be a sacrifice that will take care of this once for all? Can't there be something that will deal with this once for all? I know God has made promises. The woman's offspring to crush the serpent's head. A righteous king to sit on David's throne who will bring righteousness to the nation of Israel. The suffering servant of Isaiah, the new covenant of Jeremiah. So there should have been some sort of realization for the old covenant people of Israel that this repetitive, demanding, daunting, frustrating sacrificial system can't do what needs to be done because my heart isn't getting any pure. My conscience is not clean. I need something that finally, once and for all, completely and fully atones for, pays for all of my sins. And so the Old Testament person of Israel had to have hope and faith in God, not only to provide what they needed to, to do the sacrificial requirements, but also that one day this burden, this heavy, heavy burden, this heavy yoke of the law and its system would finally be lifted. So here's a, a, an example of, I think, where if we just imagine a little bit what it would be like to live in those circumstances, we can learn something about why does Scripture say what it says about the just who live by faith and not by works? What does it say about those who, as we're going to see later in Hebrews, who live by faith, hoping in the promises of God? Because if we put ourselves in their position, we see how difficult it would have been for anyone who had even an ounce of integrity or, or, or conscientiousness. It was a frustrating, rigorous, and demanding system, and yet there was hope in it. The law drives us to Christ. The law makes us crave, it makes us yearn for the promises of God. The just have always lived by faith. Their faith was to finally, their hope was to finally escape from that system that they were under that burdened them down. Now what we saw last week in verses 11 to 14 is that when Christ came, when he appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, those good things came. When Christ came, what they hoped for was finally accomplished. His blood qualified Christ to enter into the real holy places and there to secure an eternal redemption for all of those who repent of their sins and look to Christ in faith. Now the passage continues that thought this morning and it points to two things. The necessity of that happening and the finality of that happening. It was necessary and when it was done, it was final. It was over. It was accomplished. His sacrifice is necessary to end the futility, the pointless futility of that old system. 
Only it could offer the promised, hoped-for new covenant and new life in and with the righteous Messiah and King. And it's final because only it can permanently, permanently deal with sin and end that need for repeated, over and over and over, repeated sacrifice. So this passage tells us that the sacrifice of Christ is necessary, it's final, but it also tells us it's done for a reason, or reasons that bookend this passage, and that's why I like to treat it as one. The passage begins with the reason that he did this, in verse 15, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And he does it as well in verse 28, because he is going to appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He does it so that we might have an inheritance. He does it so that we might be finally saved, those who eagerly await that salvation. I want to look at what the author says about Christ's sacrifice, its necessity, its finality, but also about what it means for us in receiving our inheritance and in eagerly waiting for the salvation that comes with it. So, the necessity of Christ's sacrifice, the finality of it. What the author argues here is that Christ's sacrifice is necessary for two things, for purification and for an inheritance. Um, The author makes an interesting use of a double meaning in a Greek word that you may have heard, uh, diatheke, a word that translates the Old Testament Hebrew word of covenant, uh, but a word that in Greek was used for your will, your last will and testament. And he makes an interesting use of the double meaning of that word by pointing both to the covenantal aspect of purification, but then also the, the last will and testament idea of an inheritance. And he argues that Christ's death does two things, both of which we need. We need to be purified, and we need an inheritance. <laughs> Christ's death purifies us covenantally, but it also secures for us the inheritance that God has promised to us. The purification theme is, is kind of dominant in verses 18 to 23. Um, the author recalls the time in Exodus 24 when Moses has instructed the people in the law. They've heard the law. They've agreed to follow the law. We will do the words of the law. They, they vow. And Moses ratified or inaugurated the covenant uh, by sprinkling everything with blood. And as he did so, Moses reminded the people in Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is the blood that seals the covenant. This is the blood that inaugurates, that initiates, that ratifies that covenant. It purified the people, says the author. It purified the tent the vessels, it purified virtually everything so that they could enter into a covenant with a pure and holy God. It's a sacrificial blood. And verse 22 affirms that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no purification. Blood must be shed for purification to happen and for forgiveness to be received. And so that leads to this endless, repeated, rigorous, difficult, frustrating system that the Israelites 
lived under. To receive forgiveness of sins, there had to be blood. The blood had to be sacrificed. And so to supersede that old system, that frustrating system, that costly system, something better had to come along. And what the author's been arguing is, when Christ came, it, it did come. That something better came. Again, verses 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is, not made with hands, but of, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. His work supersedes everything that came before because it's his blood, it's perfect blood, it's pure blood, it's human blood for human sin. Later in verse 23, the author goes on to say that um, while it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the, the models, the tent and the temple and those sorts of things, it was necessary for those copies to be purified with these rites, the heavenly things themselves received better sacrifices, the sacrifice of Christ. And so Christ again entered not into places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The priest makes intercession for the people with the blood of the animal. Now our high priest goes into God's presence himself and says, here is my blood. I paid the penalty. I paid for their sin. I paid for all of it. It's done. It's complete. It's over. Not a copy but the real thing itself. Note, heaven doesn't need purification because it is pure and holy. But we need purification so that we may enter into God's presence. We cannot go into God's presence without the purifying work of Christ's blood on our behalf. And so we've, we've talked about this before as well, that Christ went into that tent. He went behind the curtain as a forerunner on our behalf. Here is my blood. I paid for their sins. They're coming behind me. They're pure. Let them in. And Christ went there once for all, in verse 24, on our behalf, not into the copy, but in, into the reality. So we get purification. We now have the right to enter into God's presence. But we also get an inheritance, and that's the point the author is making back in verses 16 and 17 primarily. <clears throat> now we know, maybe you have been the, the beneficiary of, of an inheritance that a relative or someone gave you in their will. Um, a person can have a will. You don't get what's in the will until they die. It's the subject of many a murder mystery. <laughs> Who killed the rich person so that they could get their inheritance? <clears throat> But the author points to this very common, very well-known thing in, in virtually every human society. You don't get your inheritance until the person dies. The one making the will, the testator, has to die. So, beginning in verse 15, the author <coughs> calls Christ the mediator of the new covenant. He's the mediator so that those who are called may receive their eternal inheritance, the promised eternal inheritance. 
And the death that has occurred is a death that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. The death that Christ died frees us from the old covenant, but also makes us heirs of the good things to come, that have come in Christ. This is a theme for the author as well. He's talked about it all the way back in chapter 6, verse 20, about those who by faith and patience receive and inherit the promises of God. That is us who turn to Christ in repentance and faith. So we have an internal, eternal inheritance, eternal life. We have hope. We have peace with each other. We have peace with God. We have the experience of true love. We have joy beyond our capacity to understand. We prayed about work situations today. One of the things I think is so powerful about the world to come is that work will be productive and meaningful, satisfying, rather than frustrating and, and uh, a burden. That inheritance, the author is saying, could not be ours until a death occurred. And that death was Christ's death. It was necessary, necessary for Christ to die so that we who believe in him can receive the inheritance through him that God has promised to us. And so he gave up his life so that we could have life. He gave up his glory in his glorious home with the Father so that we might receive glory and receive an eternal home with the Father. But unlike a last will and testament in human society where the, the testator, the, the will maker dies and is dead, <laughs> Christ rose from death as proof, as assurance of God's promise to us of life after death. Because he rose, we rise. Because he has life, we will have life and eternal life with him. So we get an inheritance. It was necessary for Christ to die so that we could be purified, so that we could receive an inheritance. And it only had to be done once. It was necessary, but it was also final. That's the point of verses 25 and 26 primarily. Jesus does not offer himself repeatedly like the Old Testament priest, like the old high priest. And really the point of verse 26 is that this would be absurd if we were to think about it. He doesn't offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. And then it, he goes on to say, for then, he would have to, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If Christ's sacrifice was like the Old Testament sacrifices, he'd have to come and die over and 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 over again. Well, that's absurd. The word, uh, the, the phrase that he uses there that Christ appeared once for all also implies that if he has to die over and over again, what else does he have to do? He's got to come to life over and over again. He's got to be born. He's got to appear over and over and over and over again. Well, that's absurd for the Christ, for the Messiah, for God's very own Son to go through that kind of a silly, repeated ritual and process. He did it once. He did it once for all. 
He took care of it once for all. What that poor believer in the Old Testament was hoping for and this endless process. Can't there be a sacrifice that does away with this once for all? It's fulfilled in Christ. It's done. It's over with. Done at the end of the ages. He's referring to the old covenant order of things, the old way of doing things, that frustrating system to live under. The end of that, that, that age is over. It doesn't come back. It's passed away. It's done with. So again, like we've talked about, um, there are two things that many Christians hold to that just don't make sense. Either the return of a sacrificial system in some future thousand-year age. Why? It's pointless. It's done. It's been done once for all. Or the Roman Catholic idea of they don't talk about a repeated sacrifice. They participate repeatedly in the one sacrifice, but it's the same kind of thing. If they're going to participate repeatedly, they should participate repeatedly in a birth too. And that, it's just absurd. It doesn't make sense. It's been done once and for all. Well, again, what does this mean for us? Two things, that inheritance that we've been talking about, but also the inheritance that we eagerly wait for, the salvation that we eagerly wait for. Because Christ's work has been done and been done once for all, that inheritance is ours, and it is surely ours. All that goes with it, eternal life, the life in the new world to come, is ours because of what Christ has done for us. Notice how the author puts it there in in verse 15. He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. God calls to his people. Christ calls to his people. Come to me. Admit your sin. Turn away from it. Reject it. Repent of it. Believe in me. Believe in my sacrifice and the once-for-all value that it has to pay for every single one of your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Accept that sacrifice. Rest in it. The work is over. The work is done. You can't add to it. Follow me as your Savior and as your Lord. Receive my Spirit to teach you my word and my law, to write it on your minds, to write it on your hearts, to give you the strength, the ability, and the desire to do what I have told you to do. Call. He calls us. Come. Come do this. And to those who hear the call and accept the call, they receive the inheritance of eternal life. All of God's people respond to that call and receive the inheritance. There's not one that doesn't hear it and doesn't respond. And there's not one who hears it and wants to respond but doesn't or can't. Every single one of God's people given by the Father to the Son respond to the call and receive the inheritance. Now, I talked about that existential struggle of those Old Testament people. 
paying over and over and over again for sin after sin after sin after sin, making sacrifice after sacrifice. Things are different now for us because it's been paid for. That worry, that fear is gone. I can rest. I can rest. What a glorious thing that is. But we still struggle with sin. I still do things I know I shouldn't do. I still don't do things that I know that I should do. Why do I do this? Why do I continue to fight against sin? When is this going to end? Our frustration is different from our Old Testament brothers and sisters in the faith. But it's real. When is this going to end? And sin and its effects in this fallen world plague us today. We're sick. We're filled with worry or doubt or, or sorrow and pain. Evil people around us do wicked and evil things to us. And we see the general degradation of the world around us and the, the people chasing after sin and the world going proverbially, proverbially to, a, to hell in a handbasket. Just loving the march as they go. And we lament it and our hearts are broken and we're frustrated We lack wisdom to make good choices, and that frustrates us. We rejoice because sin is taken care of and paid once for all. We rejoice because we have an inheritance in Christ, but we're frustrated as we continue to struggle with our own sin and the effects of sin in this world around us. And so just like the Old Testament people of God, we're compelled to look beyond ourselves in hope to the promises of God, in hope, and in faith. For them, the hope was for a Messiah to end that futile, frustrating system. For us, the hope is that Messiah will come and end this frustrating existence. Kathleen and I have talked about this for more than 20 years. The things that we struggle with as a family, that we struggle with as a couple, that we struggle with as individuals, it just weeds us from our attachment to this world. The more you look at this world, the less attached you become to it. I think it's inevitable. Because it's disgusting, quite honestly. And I think God does that on purpose. These hard things that come into life are are a lesson. Do not put your hopes here. Do not put your (coughs) excuse me, do not put your desires here. There's something better coming. So just like they waited for Messiah to come the first time, we wait for Messiah to come the second time. And verses 27 and 28 point us to that promised. It's appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment. In the same way, so also, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, is going to appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, He's already dealt with sin. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What are you waiting for? (laughs) What are you eager for? What, What burns you with desire? Is it the things of this world? Or the things of the world to come? I think if you imagine what it was like to live 
under that Old Testament system, you have to be in a position where ultimately you are compelled to hope for something better, to look to the promises of God that he had promised to send something better. And similarly today, I think if we're honest about the world we live in, we're compelled to put our hope somewhere else. As we deal with the realities of living in this fallen world, as we're frustrated by it and all that goes in within it and how it affects us and how it affects our lives and how it affects our friends and our loved ones and our families, we're compelled to look beyond the circumstances of this world to something better. There has to be something better. Thank God there is. That inheritance to come, the new world to come. And this verse and this passage is a wonderful little reminder. He kind of slips it in there at the end. Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This appearance will be like the appearance he talks about in verse 26. He appeared once to deal with sin. Now he's going to appear a second time to save us. That means physically and it means bodily. Not born, but returning as promised in the clouds. Again, where's your hope? Where's your hope? In your own efforts, in your own striving, in your own intelligence or abilities or wisdom or strength, in those of others, politicians or powerful people in, in the world around us? Is your hope in that futile struggle that they are undergoing to try to make this world a better place and they are failing miserably? Or is your hope in the promise that God will make it new in Christ when Christ returns? What are you eagerly waiting for? Eagerly. That's a powerful little adverb. What are you eagerly waiting for? We as believers should be eagerly waiting for the return of Christ because Christ is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So may you and I be filled. May we be filled with that eager expectation, that eager longing for Christ and for his coming, trusting in the meantime in his once-for-all sacrifice that secures our eternal inheritance and our eternal salvation. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you for the work of Christ, that it's done, that it's finished, that it's accomplished. We pray for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to apply that work to us, to all of God's people, wherever they may be, that they may hear the call and respond in faith. We ask that you would wean us from our attachment to this world and stir up within us an eager desire for the world to come and for Christ to come and usher that world in. May he come and may he come quickly. Father, we ask it in his holy and wonderful name. Amen.